0: Hello, and welcome to the Mirror Stage Podcast. Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge that we're on the traditional land of the first people of Seattle, the Duwamish people, past and present, in honor with gratitude the land itself and the Duwamish tribe.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Mirror Stage Podcast. I am Kiki. My pronouns are they, them.
0: And I'm Ty, my pronouns are he, him, and we at Mirror Stage are a multidisciplinary performing arts company working in the Pacific Northwest. Here at Mirror Stage, we use the power of storytelling to challenge assumptions, bias and prejudice, increasing equity and inclusion while encouraging more thoughtful reflection on today's issues.
1: And today, our topic of our show is going to be our interview with Nikita Oliver. So Nikita, whose pronouns are they, them, is a creative community organizer, abolitionist, educator, and attorney. They're working at the intersections of art, law, education, and community organizing. Nikita strives to create experiences which draw us closer to our humanity and invites us to imagine what we hope to see the future. Nikita identifies as Black, multiracial, queer, and non-binary.
0: Nikita is the Executive Director of Creative Justice, an arts-based, healing-engaged space for youth and young adults impacted by the school-to-prison pipeline and other harmful systems and institutions. They're also a movement lawyer at the Lavender Rights Project, adjunct professor at Seattle University, and steering committee member with How's Our Neighbors. So, without further ado, here is our interview with Nikita Oliver. Nikita, we'll go ahead and get started. If you want to just introduce yourself to our listeners with your name and pronouns,
1: yeah, most definitely. My name is Nikita Oliver. I use they/them pronouns. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here with us today. And we are a storytelling podcast, so we would like to know what does storytelling mean to you. Yeah,
2: I think. Storytelling is an important part about, of how we maintain culture, of how we share collective lessons. It's an important tool, I think, for healing and transformation. It can also be useful for accountability. And so um, as an artist, I really think of storytelling as a medium for engaging people around big and small ideas and holding space for each other and a way to transmit and share knowledge across generations.
0: Thank you for sharing that, Nikita. Uh, I completely agree with you, especially about um engaging people. As an artist myself, I a lot I spend a lot of time thinking about how people are gonna receive the stories that I wanna tell and how um and how I can change that and change my delivery or uh my end to make them receive it better. Um, or receive it differently, not necessarily better. Um but I know like recently I was writing a song and the few people that i played it back for they're like oh it's kind of sad it's kind of sad and I, i'm like is it should it stay sad or should i like change something about this to make people feel like less negative or less sad about it um so definitely uh i love the power of storytelling to be able to um for artists to be able to craft what they want to craft and mm-hmm. give it to someone and they receive it Any kind of way, a a good way or a bad way, or just feel something. Though I think that's the the great part about storytelling is just making people feel something. Um, So, with that being said, Nikita, what is your origin story?
2: Yeah, I wouldn't say I have a singular origin story. Um, I, I don't. I personally, maybe it's just my life experience. I don't think life moves linear like that, I think we can have multiple origin stories, especially as like intersectional people whose identities may or may not be accepted by the society that we're in. There may be multiple times of birth and rebirth over and over again. Um, But I was born and raised in Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, My father is black with majority of our family originally from um, Louisiana and other parts of the South. And my mom is a white lady from Elwood, Indiana, and uh, I would say part of my origin story is figuring out how to navigate multiple communities without it ever being like articulated that that's what I was doing. Um, I remember very on early on as a child, writing poems about being a bridge in my family, and as I got older, being able to better understand where that was coming from, why that's the way in which I was viewing myself um, and how I was navigating, moving between families and cultures and identities, and I didn't grow up in a particularly political family. I think uh, a lot of folks assumed that I was politicized early on and grew up an abolitionist, and probably assumed like my parents were Black Panthers or something like that. And it's actually the complete opposite. Um, I remember once asking my father how he identified. Uh, uh, and he I told me, he literally said to me, I identify as Southern. And I was like, well, is there anything else? I found maybe he'd say a black man or uh, maybe his age or even his religion. My father um, and my mom are Christian. Uh, I was raised Christian. I don't identify that way anymore. Um, but he just said he was Southern. And so, you know, that's why I say I have kind of like multiple origin stories, because it was when I moved from Indiana to Seattle, Washington, that I started to become politicized. It became very clear and apparent to me the way that society was structured when I left kind of my bubble. Like, I think I I thought everyone had multiracial families. Uh, That's kind of like the way I saw the world as as a child. And then when I moved to Seattle and I was going to Seattle Pacific University and I was one of very few Black students, and one of very few folks that had lived experience with having a parent that was had been incarcerated off and on and uh, one of very few that had experienced poverty or knowing what it's like to not have access to all the resources you need. It became very apparent to me that we don't all <laughs> live in this world. And so that that's we don't all live in the same we live in the same world, but maybe not the same context. So at 18, I would say I rapidly politicized almost overnight in many ways. and. My first really deep organizing experiences were on my, my college campus, trying to get the student body, the faculty, the school to think about anti-racism and uh, classism and gender. Uh, you know, I'm publicly now queer and non-binary, but at that time I went to a school that if you told people you were queer, you'd be forced to go to therapy. <laughs> so... Um, you know, I would say over the last 37 years, there have been multiple points of huge shifts in my life that have happened all at once. And at the same time, I think my whole life has been building up to them.
1: Thank you. And I liked what you said about this non-linear idea, because it is always changing and ebbing and flowing as you learn more about who you are and like how you interact with the world and how you see yourself in the world. Mm -hmm. Um. Well, and this is so fascinating to learn about, like, just like, I'm interested in learning more about, in general, how people are more intrigued and involved in politics as they go into school and as they, like, learn more about each other and, like, the people that they're interacting with and all these kinds of things. Um, I want to know more about, like, what inspires you for, in in all capacities, and the work that you do and the art that you make? Like, where do you find inspiration?
2: Yeah, I mean, at the root of it is honestly the the young people I'm around. Um, I started doing slam poetry because the youth that we were building with in the south end of Seattle uh, wanted to do an open mic. And one of my values as an educator is I'm not going to ask students to do things that I myself have not done or I'm not willing to do. And so, um, as they were planning this open mic and making flyers and how did they want their peers to be engaged and how could they get them excited? The young people we were organizing with were like, but you've never done an open mic Nikita. So like, you kind of got to go fix that. And so, um, I, I have always written poetry. It's just not anything I ever read out loud. And to be honest in Indiana, I, I didn't open mics were not a thing that I knew about. We probably had them, but it wasn't something I was engaged in. And so, um, I went to the Seattle Poetry Slam for the first time, you know, just a little bit before the youth did their first um, open mic. And it was, um, it was a qualifier for one of their national competitions and I ended up winning. And that was very unexpected because I didn't even really know the the rules of slam. I kind of was just like, all right, this has to fit in three minutes. Somebody's going to score it. It'll be a thing. But I discovered I was good at it because of, Young people pushing me to to do something, and so while they were all honing their skills, I was simultaneously honing mine and practicing my craft. And that's you know, young people really inspire me. I also you know am not new to being an artist. Or at that time, I wasn't, but mostly was doing music. So I played viola. I taught myself how to play guitar. I was in symphony and multiple choirs and show choir growing up. I sang at church, and so. In that regard, I would say being an artist was more about having a release. I really find there's something very special about being on a stage and getting to choose what you do or do not share, and how you do or do not share it, and um, being able to to take really deep emotions or even sensitive topics and engage them in a way that an audience can also engage them with you. So while I would say young people are a deep inspiration for me, I think also being an artist has been very much about my own survival and ability to process hard things and find my own resiliency Um, and then a way to connect with people. That, to be honest, as a young person, I had more control over. I feel like young people don't have a lot of control over who they have to interact with, what stories are expected to tell, what information they have to take in. And I found performance art to be a way that I actually had a level of control over what I put out into the world and how I interacted with the world. And so it also became a space of really understanding my own self-determination, my own empowerment. Uh, and that's that's how I use art now. We we leverage it as a tool for healing and accountability, speaking truth to power, um, storytelling, you know, collective care, understanding, processing tough things, imagining the world we want to live in, learning how to use it as a tool of manifestation. I feel like those are all things that evolved out of needing to survive and then finding out that this is also a tool that can promote my thriving and what life looks like in the future.
0: Nice, I completely agree. I think people tend to underestimate how powerful art is. That's why now we see all these things like art therapy and music therapy popping up because it's like there's a strong healing factor um in art and story and music and uh not just like emotional and um like what some people feel like is imaginary healing, but it, mm. it can actually physically heal your body, is specifically like music therapy. There have been people who have had these like uh like paralysis issues where like the vibrations have opened up their their limbs and their um their body and it's helping them move you know um there's a deep healing factor um in art and i love the ability that artists have to um really like tell stories this is one thing that mirror stage does a lot but take like a very deep complex idea like racism or or gun violence and put it in a story and be able to entertain someone but also give them this this deep takeaway um that can can be life-changing for a lot of people um, and to do it with youth i can't imagine how fulfilling that is because um, they're just endless imagination um, and so yeah thank you for sharing that it's awesome work that sounds like you do Um, And I want to know more about the political campaigns in Seattle and how those experiences have informed your ongoing work. Can you tell us a bit about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I would uh, actually probably reverse the flow. I would say it's my work that has informed political engagement. You know, I try to be real honest that I think this system is very flawed. I don't think we actually live in a democracy. I think in many ways we live in a corporatocracy and in in an oligarchy. Um, And I have always viewed electoral platforms as an opportunity to elevate and amplify the work that we're already doing in community um, rather than the political campaign informing the work in community. So, you know, the 2017 campaign for mayor um, with the Seattle People's Party was really... We were looking at the city, we were post the 2016 Trump election and feeling like we didn't have a lot of ability to impact what was happening nationally, but had a lot of ability to impact our local communities. And a lot of the folks that were part of that campaign and that planning committee were people that were already active community organizers, advocates, activists, artists, cultural workers, nonprofit workers who were already very deep in trying to develop community-based solutions to the challenges that our city was facing, and so we we saw this big citywide campaign that people were really paying attention to you know in a mayoral year folks tend to be way more engaged in politics in the city but we also did not see our community that engaged and that is because m- most politicians don't actually speak to what's important to us or when it comes to the options of who we're voting for it's like do I want this terrible version of a thing or this terrible version of a thing and so you know we decided we would give electoral politics like an opportunity and see if we could leverage that platform not just to win a seat but more importantly to politicize and mobilize our community to be organizing for the solutions that we want because those are often um, if ever <laughs> driven by politicians um so we went through a really lengthy process of doing circles for months to even think about is this something that community that we're organizing with would want to do. And then we started um collaboratively coming up with the names of community members that we would trust to run for office. And you know, even though my name was in the list, to be quite frank, (laughs) I didn't want to run. That's like I'm happy to support someone else. I'm down to be your scheduler, write your emails, give you talking points, show up places, be your bodyguard, bring you food, whatever you need, I'm down to do it. Um, but the, the community we were organizing with, when we went through a process of voting and we knew we could really only effectively run one campaign, um, I was selected by folks to be the person who represented our campaign in that 2017 mayoral election. And I think what was really powerful about that particular campaign is we were not focused on winning as much as we were focused on how does the wind extend beyond the seat? Because we have seen many people get elected to public office and they end up changing more than they change the office itself. And that's usually (laughs) for the worse. But I, I think what became very dynamic about that campaign is much of the city started to galvanize around it. There was a lot of excitement about the potential of having candidates in office who were birthed out of movement, who were deeply connected to grassroots movement, who are not just simply physical representation, you know, because I'll be the first to tell you all my uh, skin folk are not my kin folk. So don't vote for me just because I'm black and queer. Um, vote for me because I also have the analysis that, you know, or the theory of change that that will actually get black folks liberated and support indigenous sovereignty. And so I think people started to see that that reality could be like practical, like it could be a practical thing that happens. Um, and while we didn't win that campaign, uh, our campaign continued to shape the election for the rest of that cycle. And then Mayor Durkin, who ultimately won, she could not <laughs> escape uh, the, the narrative, the organizing, the work that we were actively doing. And that's for me what made the 2017 campaign so successful was that it became also a tool for narrative building and narrative shifting it became a tool for accountability and building power and it did not become just about one person Um, and we did attempt to afterwards develop the seattle people's party and i think learned a lot of lessons out of that uh, just about capacity and how hard it is for black brown indigenous queer and trans people low-income folks disabled folks to be able to, like, build this infrastructure when we don't always have access to the the time and money resources to make that a reality. So I think we learned a lot of good lessons from that as well. And then the 2021 campaign, you know, we, we had the uprisings and mass mobilization in 2020, a lot of lip service from electeds. And, and we know that it was lip service now in 2023 because no police department was defunded, Um, even though the right loves to say, this is what happens when you defund the police, the police were not defunded, y'all. This is what happens when we don't actually follow through on things we say we're going to do. Um, And so that campaign was very much a a response to wanting to continue to galvanize community towards an abolitionist vision. And what would it look like if we could um, leverage an electoral process and electoral seats to mobilize and galvanize um, people towards those solutions. Um, and, and I really wanna just hold that I don't think that winning that election would have somehow meant we defund SPD by 50% and that those dollars would be invested in black community, but it would mean we'd have an additional foothold into the, the processes that can make that a reality. The truth is, I think what we've learned is as having as much community-based mobilization, uh, having folks organized, making sure folks are politicized is key to seeing something like a run for office be more than just a run for office. And so really turning our attention towards organizing and educating our communities. Um, But that being said, I feel like that run for office did help us have a lot of tools and information for the initiative that we ran in 2022 to make social housing a reality in Seattle. And that initiative was then one, Um, And now we're in the process of implementation. So I I constantly come back to asking myself, you know, what data, what knowledge can we gain from using electoral platforms to make the other areas of our work more of a reality? So we learned a lot about voters and what they care about. Forty six percent of people who voted in that election did vote for an abolitionist um, in our race. And I think that that is a significant And it says a lot. So, yeah, to go back to your original question and me using a lot of words, I would say that those political engagements are what is, are informed by the community work. And I think that's where most politics goes wrong, is that we think politics informs what we do in the community. And I wish more folks who ran for office actually built deep community relationships before they hopped into races because it makes such a significant difference about who do, who ultimately ends up voting, what they're voting on, what is the conversation that election cycle, whose needs are being amplified, how are we thinking about those needs? Um, how are we thinking about the possibility of transformation um, as opposed to just you know regular old representation which has never served black community? Um, I think coming from that place of being deeply community rooted uh, allows us to use the tool of electoral platforms much more effectively for like our ultimate vision of abolition.
1: Thank you for sharing. It's so interesting to like hear kind of like you're discussing your journey through all of this. So I guess I do have a follow-up question. Um, Would you run again for a a different (laughs) Or like, where where do you see your political career? I guess like moving forward, and I understand that like uh, obviously this can change. <laughs> like I'm sure there are some days you're like, I want it, I want to like do this, and some days you're like, nah. But like, I guess today, what do you what are you feeling?
2: Yeah, uh, today I feel like absolutely not. <laughs> um, you know, to be like just like 100, the 2021 election was like very traumatizing, not because we lost, but so my father passed in December of 2020. And then uh, by January, folks were trying to figure out was I going to run and so they, most folks that I would run for mayor again and entered into a process with folks that I organized with and trust to determine if me running for office again made sense. And so I you know, went through process, sat with folks, We went through like an internal vote where everyone was in favor of me running again. And to be honest, if I had not been in the fog of grief, I maybe would have said no. And that maybe shocks people. But 2021 was just like, I I think that so this is all in hindsight, but just like the attacks, um, whether those were through mailers or websites people made about me that were just like categorically untrue. Or um, after the election, I had three or four stalkers that were coming to my home, coming to my job. Um, I regularly had people trying to get me fired from jobs that I had, not because i like done anything that warrants getting me fired, but because you disagreed with my political position, which in my mind is a, is a very like rooted in human rights. Like I, I don't think housing for all is that radical. I don't think decommodified housing is that radical. I don't actually think restorative justice is that radical. Um, I don't think assessing how much we spend on policing and prisons and prosecution and asking ourselves, is this actually getting us safer communities? We know the answer is no. Um, I don't think that that's that radical. I think that those are like really important assessments of whether or not our solutions to human suffering are, are not working. And I think the answer is no. Um, but that, I mean, people calling my phone, folks looking at my family's addresses, people threatening me lasted for a pretty significant period of time after the election. And um, when you lose an election, everybody kind of disappears right after. They're like, oh, you lost. Like, And so there wasn't a lot of support to navigate Um The stalking, you know, like I'm obviously not going to call the police. (laughs) Uh, They, You know, not only would they laugh at me, but also it's not a system I feel safe with. Um, And I'm not a wealthy person, so it's not like I can just up and move every time someone finds my new address or put in place significant security measures. So there was just like a lot of personal sacrifice at election that I didn't know when we announced was going to be where I was when we got to November what I will say is, though, that I did find like really important about that election was both Nicole Thomas Kennedy and I were in the general election, both very publicly abolitionist. And, you know, as I said, a very significant portion of voters who voted voted for like very bold abolitionist policies. And so um, despite like how traumatic that election was and the conditions we were all under, like the pandemic was at its highest point. Um, We were seeing so much backlash towards Black Lives Matter. Um, We were experiencing and are still experiencing the economic fallouts of what happened during the pandemic and the lack of um, governmental response, actually meeting people's needs. And so there was just such a, there was just so much happening in the conditions that people were experiencing that it's hard to say that I would do that again. (laughs) Um, And I think for people who want to run for office, who are not wealthy, who can't take 10 months off from work to to run for office, who have to work a full-time gig, run a full-time campaign, and then also be a candidate that is receiving a lot of attack. I just really feel for people. I wish as a community, we had more infrastructure for care um, for two reasons. One is I think you can fall into a savior complex if you don't have the right accountability and community to make sure you remember, like, this is actually not about you. This is about us. That's the first part. The second piece is just like when we put people out in front in that way and we know that we're fighting a white supremacist, classist, uh, homophobic, transphobic system And we also need to make sure we protect people because ever since that election, I have been fighting my desire to just like close up and hide and protect myself. Um, And that is not something I want other people to experience because it, I think internally, it was very devastating for me. Um, And ultimately I ended up moving away from Seattle because I could not feel safe in Seattle. So I I think that in the long run, if we're going to keep running folks for office uh, that we want to push these kinds of, like policies forward and be true to what we know our communities need, then we need to have plans for how we keep folks safe and protected so they can stay where they are and can can continue to be a part of the ecosystem. So it's just something I'm processing and um, wanting. I, I want us to be able to engage in this level of organizing on all sides. And I want us to be able to keep each other safe.
1: Yeah, thank you. Because I, I wonder too, I was like, I'm sure there's a lot of differences between the the two campaigns. um but especially like twenty twenty one is like in the in the thick of it with everything that was going on politically and all the conversations that were coming up.
3: If you're enjoying this podcast and would like to support it and other Mirror Stage programming, you can make a tax-deductible donation via our website, MirrorStage.org, or text Smart to 206-888-6477. That's
1: 206-888-MIRR. You are no longer based in Washington? correct? Or if that is also information you don't want to share on here, I understand that as well.
2: No, you're good. Um, I live in the Midwest, but I work in Seattle. So I read, I'm kind of like splitting time, which, you know, the other part of this is like, our families have suffered so much in the last few years, like black and brown people's families, indigenous people's families. And the other thing I realized is I was so far from, from, from my family, when my father passed that I didn't get to be present the way that I wanted to be for us to like grieve together. And then that next May, my cousin passed. And then next October, another cousin passed. And then this past October, my aunt um, passed after a 20 year battle with cancer. And so it it also became really apparent to me that um, I wanted to be able to show up for my family differently. And so uh, part of moving was like both safety, but also just like I'm 37, (laughs) my elders are getting older. And it's now my time to be participating in elder care. And um, so I split time so that when I'm home, I can be present with my family and contribute to like our family's ecosystem and our health and well being. And then I spend a few weeks every month in Seattle continuing to help build up creative justice with the, the, the short-term goal of eventually replacing myself here, but doing it in a way that doesn't leave my team, my family at Creative Justice, feeling like I was just like, bye y'all. Um, you know, we've built a really beautiful community here and I want to steward that transition as best I can while also holding, like, I have, I have other responsibilities too. And, um, honestly, getting to be a part of my supporting my aunt during our transition was as hard and as devastating as it was. It was also healing. I didn't get to be present with my father in that way. So, Yeah, life is just always so much more nuanced and full of many, many things that impact our decisions. And I think when you're public, uh, like I have been for the last five years, uh, people kind of forget that you also have all these other human things that have absolutely nothing to do with running for office that are simultaneously happening. And so, um, yeah, I split time and I, I, I feel like I have a renewed appreciation for the Midwest. You know, Detroit is very Black. And there's something very lovely about going to the grocery store and seeing Black people, going to the airport and seeing Black people, being at the gas station and seeing Black people, being at the park. And there's hella Black people. Um, I feel like for me, that was just like living in Detroit uh, was a really beautiful time and a way to transition from Seattle back into really being in the Midwest.
1: Thank you. Well, and I was going to say this actually does lead us to some more conversation about, uh, creative justice. So can you tell us like what, what it is, how you got involved, how your role has kind of like shaped shifted throughout your work?
2: Yeah. So I started with creative justice in 2015. Um, the organization was sort of founded in 2014 with a, um, team of artists, community members, young people impacted by the juvenile criminal punishment system, one public defender, one judge, and one one prosecutor. And the org itself really was birds out of the No New Youth Jail movement. So when the county voted to fund the new uh, youth jail, the county was also required to give 1% of the capital funding towards public art. And usually that art is like a mural or a statue or, to be honest, sometimes things that pop up in our communities that we're like, what the heck is that? (laughs) Um, And so these uh, folks at 4Culture, two women, uh, and I'll be specific, two white women who had been doing some Nona Youth Joe organizing, were like, what if we used a portion of this money to do something innovative to actually maybe fund a solution to the school to prison pipeline or at least seed it? And so $250,000 of that money was used to seed the initial process and then a portion of our initial funding. And in that first year, I was still finishing law school, um, finishing my master's of education. I kept getting like this job announcement. People kept being like, you should apply to be a mentor artist. You should apply to be a mentor artist. Like they're wanting to stop putting kids in cages and using art to do that. And so I applied. I didn't expect to get selected. Um, But I was hired as one of the first four mentor artists for the founding year. And my session was the last session of the year. And um, in 2015, there was a King County Council member that desperately wanted to shut our program down. So they sent a staffer out to see the Community Action Project, which is young people's final presentation at the end of a session to show the art that they created, to tell stories that they want to tell. And this, um, the staffer that came, the legislative assistant, ended up in tears by the end of this, the young people's presentation. And came to me was like, I was sent here to try to get information to shut y'all down and all I can do is go back and talk about how transformative what y'all do, are doing with young people. And so after the end of that session, um, Aaron Counts, who was the lead engagement artist, invited me to join the team as the advocacy director um, I had just gotten my bar card by the time we finished um, that session and he thought it'd be good to have a lawyer on the team. And so that really, that set off my journey. And so, um, became one of the few, we were only two full-time staff members at that time. Neither one of us were compensated as full-time staff. So we had a million other jobs as most artists do. Um, And I went from advocacy director to being, or I guess, advocacy manager to advocacy director to a co-executive director. Um, And since 2015, we've grown the organization from two contracted staff to um, 12 or 13 full-time staff, anywhere from 12 to 20 part-time staff throughout the year. We run a full-time fellowship where young people who've been a part of the organization can train and the full-time director's roles to be ready to take those roles when those directors leave. And we've been able able to really like dig in deep to our commitment that in a few years, this organization will not be run simply by folks who have been impacted by mass incarceration, but it will be run by young people who have been a part of the organization. Um, And that's really exciting to see. We're opening a cafe at Washington Hall. We're revitalizing the small venue here so young people have access to performing arts spaces. We run an arts-based healing circle program. We have a podcast. We have an advocacy team that's made up of all youth. Um, and it's just been really powerful to go from just working alongside 12 to 15 youth for three, three months to having this very robust, very well-supported team that is rooted in an abolitionist vision. We all are committed to not putting young people in cages. And we are also deeply committed Generating safety through healing and accountability work that can only happen through relationship and care and doing that through art and culture because we do believe there is deep power in sharing our stories and telling our stories and collectively creating new stories um, that that can help us imagine a world where we are well cared for, where we have the things that we need and where safety is rooted in our relationships and not just in the power structures around us. And while right now that is our imagination, I do think through doing this work and building up our skills for restorative and transformative justice, we can make it a reality. Um, So yeah, that's creative justice. I'm I'm now the ED, um, and we are slowly moving towards uh, transitioning me out and hiring new co-EDs, but wanting to do that in a way that the team feels really supported. When I became the ED of CJ, I didn't have necessarily a lot of support. And to be quite frank, didn't really know what I was doing, kind of had to just like figure it out. What does an ED do? I have no idea. I think it involves money um and i want the next set of leadership and creative justice to have the training and the support that they need so that they can hit the ground running be less stressed and like know that the community has our arms wrapped around them
0: that's awesome Nikita and it it sounds like you're like changing a lot of lives of the young people and uh i love the idea that in the future you know all of the organization will be run by people who went through the program. So we'll know like even, even more so what, you know, people in positions that they used to be in will need and how to best help them. Um, it's an incredible idea. And I love that, um, the women at Four for culture, um, had the idea to, you know, do something innovative. A lot of times we always look like inside our community, but there are a lot of, um, Ad, advocates who um aren't necessarily part of our community who want to help and um are not like like everybody else i'm i'm from the south too so i tend to have a um an idea that white people don't want to help black people just like as the default, and then something else will happen where I'm like, oh, okay, they're they're an advocate when it should kind of be the reverse, kind of ex- expecting people to be advocates, and then when I realize they're not, then moving on. But um, but I love that. And you kind of mentioned the cafe, but um, we we know that y'all have been working with Black Power Unlimited um to create the creative cafe. Can you tell us a little bit more about um that partnership and Uh, what you guys, uh, what the next steps are for the project?
2: Absolutely. Um, So Black Power Unlimited uh, was in some ways birthed out of and deeply connected to HIDMO, which, you know, if you're like a local Seattleite, folks will know that HIDMO was a really powerful, beautiful arts and culture space. Um, Shout out to Rahwa and Gabriel Teodros and the work that they did to build that space with many others. But uh, it became like an arts and culture hub um, and when HIDMO, uh, no longer was able to exist, folks came together to try to rebirth HIDMO, um, on the first floor of Washington Hall. And Washington Hall is a historic building, um, that was renovated, um, to be able to be ADA, ADA accessible, have way better, um, spaces for performance and arts and culture work. And a part of that, um, Black Power Unlimited, which is deeply connected to HITMO, took over in a lot of ways the first floor. And um, we're so grateful to them because when Creative Justice was looking for a home, they invited us in with open arms. And we originally, when we started, would move from location to location because we didn't quite have a home. And um, when they invited us in, we were able to have a stable place where young people could always identify knowing that there are supports that are there. So that's the first thing I want to say. BPU has offered us a really incredible home. Um, Creative Justice has also, though, been able to become very stable uh, through fundraising and community support and the work that our team does uh, during the pandemic. We actually, the roles kind of reversed. Creative Justice was able to do things like pay all of our rent up front, uh, was able to subsidize certain things. And so we began to see that between Black Power Unlimited and Limited in us. Um, we were helping keep these two organizations afloat. CJ had a home, but also BPU could make their rent. Around that same time, there was a show that happened here in our building. We weren't the ones coordinating it, but it was in the large theater here, and there was a shooting at that show. And as you can imagine, um, it was very tragic. Luckily, no one was hurt or or died, but uh, a lot of emotions, a lot of like for folks, a lot of triggers came up. And so Creative Justice, along with BPU and other folks in the building, helped to hold um, a healing space and a space for conversation. And something that came up in that dialogue was that the elders in the community wanted more intergenerational spaces and they wanted the hall to bring back the cafe that had been on the first floor prior to the pandemic that Black Power Unlimited had been running. So we started talking about what would make that feasible and BPU was really honest that they just did not have the capacity or the staffing to make that a reality. And, um, I went back and I spoke with our team and our team was like, heck yeah, let's figure it out. We do have the capacity. We do have the staffing. Um, we do have the connections. And so this really beautiful thing was able to arise out of, um, out of our two organizations seeing that honestly our liberation is deeply interconnected. And in this instance, it's making this cafe a healing space, an intergenerational space, um, a venue that that black brown indigenous artists can use more affordably, that we would be able to together make that a reality. And so um, we've our orgs have come together with Creative Justice taking on the brunt of the capital and the programming work, Um, and BPU being committed to continue to support us in managing the venue. Um, And so Creative Cafe is going to be a place where young people can be trained, um, not just in how to be a barista run a cafe, but also in their rights. What are your labor rights? So we're also committed as a part of that project, making sure when young people leave Creative Justice and they go to a new employer, they're able to know what their rights should be under the law and protect and defend themselves and their coworkers. So that is also a big part of this is like, not just simply like let's open a cafe because that's what the community is asked, not just let uh, just open a cafe because that'll also help us become more sustainable as an organization, but to also open this cafe and have a deep commitment. to like thinking about the ways in which we can continue to see young people become empowered and self-determined with information. And so organizations like Folkham Roastery is coming alongside us, has helped us um, be able to work with La Marzocco to get a new espresso machine in the space. Um, the station coffee shop uh, literally was like, I said, you have a staff member there who's really amazing. We want to hire him. Would y'all mind if we came and took one of your folks and brought them over here? And the station was like, absolutely. We also agree this person would be an amazing cafe coordinator. And then on top of it, it was the station that made the introduction to Fulcrum. So there are multiple organizations with Black Power Unlimited and Creative Justice that are coming together to make this cafe a reality. And us thinking about What are also the other jobs within the coffee industry that young people, and and in particular, Black, Brown, and Indigenous youth need access to? So, you know, we're thinking with Fulcrum about how do we train young people in roasting coffee and understanding the business of coffee. And then one of the most highly paid roles in the coffee industry is like the mechanics that fix the espresso machines. Um, There are so few of them that it's a very well-paid role. And so we're also thinking about how can we get young people into roles like that that becomes sustainable careers um, and and really start to build that out and think about also what is the network of black and brown owned coffee shops in our region that after young people have moved through their fellowship with us, they could go work there. And those coffee shop owners and managers know that these young folks have been trained up and are going to bring really great things to their space. So really trying to think holistically about how this this both stabilizes Black Power Unlimited and creative justice, but also starts to provide a really robust network of opportunities for young folks within the the coffee industry.
1: That's just such a Pacific Northwest like thing. Well, I think it's just like the coffee aspect and just like, how can we use that and utilize that like on a wider scale and a wider benefit? And I just I love it. As a big coffee snob, I <laughs> I gear for it. Well, come through. We'd love to serve you a cup. We're going to be opening in
2: January. So sometime around MLK Day weekend. Uh, and it should be very good coffee. We're so excited about what the roastery is doing for us.
1: Oh, I love it. Ty, we got to go.
0: Yeah, oh. we do. That's going to be awesome. Um, so Nikita, we're coming close to the end of our interview, but I wanted to share something with you that I found during our research, um, because I was so deeply moved um, by your poem, Speak and Find Yourself Home. Um, Would you mind if I read it to our listeners really quick? Oh, go ahead. Okay. So, Speak and Find Yourself Home. I know so many four-letter words, love, hold, live, hope, but home is the hardest to find. Tucked away in the four corners of my jaw, can't say it's where I come from, but I'll speak it where I am. and that poem is so was so deeply moving. I literally got goosebumps again just now reading it. um, and I think it hit me so hard because, like like I mentioned, I'm from Georgia. I also lost my father, um, maybe three Mm -hmm. months before you lost your father and moved here, um, in December of 2020. So I was also kind of clouded by grief where I felt like it was the best time to move. And maybe it was, but I'm also like not going through grief with all of my family back in Georgia. Um, so home here is the hardest to find because everywhere I go, you know, even in my workplace, I can count the number of Black people who work there on almost, almost two hands now. I think there's like six or seven. We just hired two more people. Hopefully it'll okay. be 10 next year. Um, but that poem was so deeply moving. And I just want to know if you have another, um, another poem that you would like to share for our re- our listeners, or even if it's not a poem, like anything that, um, you would like to share just to have that artistic release on this platform while you're with us?
2: Oh, wow. Thank you for that. Uh, thank you for the, that, the space and the offering. Um, I actually have forgotten that poem. I think um, I don't necessarily have a poem to share. I wish I did. I'm trying to get back into writing. I, I feel like being an arts administrator and holding space for other people to be creative um, I've lost a little bit of like the time and ability to sit down and create. So I'm working towards that. I'm supposed to be doing an event on December 8th at Seattle Town Hall where I'm supposed to have a new original piece <laughs> that I'm working on. But um, I think what I would offer is, and I really appreciate the reminder of that poem. Um, you may not know how timely it is, but I, I get a lot of flack online for having moved and um People often being like, well, you don't have an You don't get to have an opinion because you don't live here. And I appreciate the reminder that home is where we make it. Like if, if I'm if I am home and I'm building with people to help make this place a safer, healthier place where we can all be, then I should be able to be at home. And um, I don't mean that in a colonizer way, because I think also sometimes people think that if they go somewhere, they're like, it's my home, that it's their home. Uh, It's not. You don't get to just claim places. But um, there is something to being intentional about being in relationships with people and wanting to leave a place better than what you found it. And that has always been my goal living in Seattle um, is how can I make this place better in twenty. 23 that was when I moved here in 2004 um and I cannot say that the whole city is better but what I will say is um and the hardest part about trying to fully transition to the midwest is like creative justice and the community that we've built here is one of such deep care and creativity um that it is hard to leave my staff often tell me they're like I don't they're like I don't know how I'll go work somewhere else. Um, because of the collective care that we've built. And our team is constantly going through it. We are a majority, we are 100% people of color and we are majority black and folks that have some sort of indigenous connection to the place that they come from, whether that's Turtle Island or someplace else. And so the number of things that are constantly coming for this team, it seems unlimited. But the way that they show up for each other, the way that they'll take on tasks for each other, the way that they'll take each other food or medicine or go to a funeral with each other. I didn't know that person, but that's the person you loved and care about. I will go with you. You don't traditionally think about or generally think about a workplace being a space where people care about each other at that level. And that has become home for me. It is hard for me to imagine not walking through the doors of creative justice um, at some point in time and in my week. And knowing that that this is a place that young people and staff alike view as their home, um, and I think that for me as an artist is maybe my most uh, important artis- artistic artistic uh, contribution to the world. Like if generate if helping to build and hold this space where people find so much love and care could be viewed as an art piece. That is an art piece I am really proud of, and feel so deeply grateful to call our team
0: home that's incredible thank you nikita i think that was that was even better than poetry for sure <laughs> <laughs> um so we have reached the end of our lovely conversation uh, is there anything else that you would like to share for our listeners like any upcoming projects or initiatives or um anything that you're excited about that you'd like to share before we let you go
2: Absolutely. I would just love to encourage folks come through the creative cafe. Uh, we will have a monthly open mic ran by young people called Drift. and um, you know, really wanting to, there was a point in time in the city when we had like free open mics everywhere. They're like any night of the week you could get on a mic um, and you could be with other creatives and community. Those spaces don't exist the same way as they, as they once did both due to gentrification and I would say the fallout from what has happened with the pandemic and the economic crisis that so many people are feeling in the city and we want to be able to like reground spaces like that and do it in a way that's affordable and accessible to our community. so I also want to say if you're an artist, um if you're a queer trans black indigenous artist of color and you are looking for an affordable venue to be able to put your art out into the world, come talk to us. We want to be able to build with with folks and Um, I I personally know how much having access to those spaces can transform your future ability to be a creative in the way that you want to. And we want to be a place to offer that. So January, the cafe will open and then we'll spend the beginning of next year revitalizing the space to have new lights, new sound, uh, better electrical options, acoustic treatments, so that people can have small theater spaces to come through and practice their craft, to tell their stories. Um, and we want to be a place where where folks can do that.
3: If you're enjoying this podcast and would like to support it and other Mirror Stage programming, you can make a tax deductible donation via our website, mirrorstage.org, or text Play It Smart to 206 6477. That's 206 888 M I R R. I love them
0: yeah they I just
1: love them so much
0: <laughs> they were awesome like such a such a wealth of like knowledge and uh and just experience working in Seattle and uh so I think in everything that I read it was like I only saw the uh, the first campaign and I didn't see anything about the 2021 campaign
1: I didn't see anything else about 2021 campaign and then I immediately had that moment of like because like we do research on everyone that we interview we're always looking into it and i'm just how did i this? how did I not know this was a thing so i'm glad that they kind of like chatted about that a little bit so that i could ask that follow-up of like what well, would you do it a third time yeah or like what did that look like i didn't even get to ask them too because i was like you're gonna write a book right like you have to write a you have to write a you book right just based off of everything in their bio every all their lived experiences all the like knowledge and stuff they're dropping about the political realm and kind of this aspect of like Mm self-care and how do you, how can you, how can you go into these systems and make a change in these systems when you have to go to work and you don't have the money to always do that and stuff like that. So that just gets me more curious about these Mm grassroots as a concept and like how people can join and be part of the movement when you do have to go to work
0: yeah yeah and I never thought about like like people who run for office have to not work during that time and I'm like if you're not wealthy you can't do that 10 months like that a lot of people are living month to month you know let alone Mm -hmm. having to be able to have a whole year's worth of income for you to um pursue change in your community um i, I almost yeah. feel like they should be paying you to run like once you are an official candidate they're like hey here's this stipend where so you can eat <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah i, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's I know crazy. that's
1: so true that's so true all these like conversations about like multi-millions of dollars being like Shoved into campaigns for people who are already like millionaires and billionaires. This was mm-hmm. like, can't I just maybe miss a day of work so that I could go to this rally and support and show mm-hmm. my support? But yeah, when they said that, when they were like, oh, yeah, like this, that, oh, it's 10 months off. And I was just like, oh, my, of course. Like, yeah. of co- you can't be like, oh, I have to go to work or I have to pick up my kids from school, just like all these things that are affecting everyday people on mm-hmm. that same scale that are being the ones who are out there voting and doing all these things. Ah, everything seems unattainable. But when they spoke about it, I was just so moved and like, oh, people can do this. There can be change.
0: <laughs> yeah. If you prepare <laughs> for sure <laughs> if you
1: prepare, and have support. Needs a budget. Yes. Everyone needs a budget and savings. That's, what, that's the big takeaway from mm-hmm. the self-care. And savings
0: are important. <laughs> yeah. But um when Nikita was talking about their dad identifying as Southern, I was like, that makes sense. And that's a whole like thing of intersectionality because Southern can mean like, especially if you're a, a black and southern. And mm-hmm. that's like, okay, that includes probably Christian and then like country as hell, and then like a bunch of other things that just come uh, with living like well being born before the 1970s in the south as well i think there's like a a stark like difference from even my mom being born in 60s and then some of my like um older cousins who are close to my mom's age but like a decade apart it's like a completely stark difference like the difference between going to an integrated school and a segregated school almost like um they just don't really see the world different, but they kind of navigate the world different. And um, I, I, especially in the South, like a lot um, comes with that. Uh, and it's very interesting that that's just like how her dad identifies. I feel like I should start taking that. Like, uh, I identify as Southern. You can hear it in the twang.
1: <laughs> <laughs> when, they, when they said that, I was like, I wonder if that's how Ty identifies. <laughs> I was just like, I wonder. If it, I, it's just interesting to hear people and I talk about when they when asked, like, "Oh, how do you identify?" Like, what comes to their brain for what an answer would be? And I'm sure that that is exactly like you're saying. It depends on region and like year of birth and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Where you're just like, "Oh, yeah, all of these different intersexualities are going to have an effect on how you answer that, and like how you answer it tells." it tells the person a lot. I feel like it tells the person a lot about you.
0: Mm-hmm. It definitely does. So I think like if someone were to ask me how I identify, I would probably immediately go to like a creative or an artist because that's just how I, like every time I see something or anything I, that moves me, it moves me in a creative way. So I think that that's kind of the lens that I've grown to see the world through and being Southern. Um, is probably like the third or fourth thing after like it's like artists black probably christian first actually cuz i am you know probably um very religious internally i don't really even go to church but i have a close relationship with christ and then it's art for me um and then i think like black and southern all that kind of falls to the wayside because it's like a it's become more of a superficial thing to me Um, especially Mm -hmm. being in seattle not around a lot of black people it's like not something that uh immediately comes to uh, my mind now sometimes it is like when i'm the only black person at uh at safeway but other than that (laughs) it doesn't really come to the forefront too too much um I also did not know that they were connected to House Our Neighbors. And listeners, if you remember, go back like five or six, probably more than that, episodes. Um, we got to have a conversation with some representatives from How's Our Neighbors uh, before they passed the social housing thing. That was kind of something that they were uh, working towards and they were able to get that passed. Uh, so when Nikita mentioned that, I was like, oh, shout out. House our neighbors uh, because social housing is a huge issue, not a huge issue, but a huge solution to a huge issue um, that is plaguing a lot of our communities in Seattle, in um, particular with the tent cities and everything that seems to only really be getting worse. They've I've seen some um like start to move up this way now. I haven't really seen them in Linwood, but there's like a few places where these Um, more than two or three people are grouped in tents living outside. Um, And I just think social housing is a, a great solution to that. And it's cool that Nikita was involved with them.
1: Yeah. It just seems like Nikita has so many things that like different things they're working on. And like from their bio, it's just like, wow, you have so many different interesting ties to different communities and different, organizations that are making phenomenal social change across many different kinds of realms like from these political ones to like housing I guess it all kind of ties in the politics but from the political realm to housing realm to like education to law all these different things
0: yeah and I I didn't read they opened up for public enemy it,
1: I had questions <laughs> I was like, "Listen, there's nowhere to be like. Tell us more about Truck D and Public Enemy and why <laughs> you were like opening for them. I need to yeah, find that's, this that's Breakfast Club shit. interview that. That's they-
0: literally what I'm trying to find right now too. Like, they were on the Breakfast Club. I thought I've seen every episode of the Breakfast Club, but only this year probably. <laughs> <laughs> but that doesn't surprise me, just because the um. The type of people they bring onto the Breakfast Club or they bring a lot of like change makers and uh, like community leaders and experts onto the uh, onto the platform as well. That's really, really awesome. I had no clue. There were so many follow up questions I could have asked them, but I was like, oh, they're giving us so much.
1: I just want everyone to go to listen to this episode and reflect (laughs) internally and with other people who have listened to this episode.
0: I just feel like I'm kind of like I feel like I should have asked because I I get what creative justice does, but I'm like, how do they do it? Like, do they just, are they just get the kids out their situation and put them in these programs? Like, I just am so curious. I th- and I think I have to see it in person because yeah. I don't think any kind of like explanation or like. Thing I could listen to will tell me, um, like will give me a, a satisfaction to know how this works without me seeing it from the inside. So we're definitely going to have to um, pull up on them.
1: <laughs> Agreed. Well, I want to hop in. I think that takes us, that does take us to our call to actions, which is like people can learn more about creative justice and the work that they do on their website. But also there, there's like a form on there that people can like fill out if they want to be a part of it and they want to be one of the artists that is either like working with individuals or that want to, like as a young person who wants to like be working with artists in some capacity, they can also apply. Um, and I think it'll give everyone a good idea about what it is and like how to get involved. Cause it seems like too kind of tie like what you're saying, is it's like, that seems like a great place to like harness skills, but as well as like the skills that we have of like teaching or helping or just being mentor in some capacity, like how can we get
0: involved? Mm -hmm. Yeah. How can we help and also, you know, receive uh, from being around the creatives and the youth. Um, So yeah, go check out our, um, our show notes for the link to Creative Justice's website. We'll also provide a few links um, to all the amazing writing and poetry that Nikita has done, including the poem that I read on our episode today, Speak and Find Yourself Home.
1: Yeah, and everyone go to that opening of the Creative Cafe. I am very excited about this as a concept and I love this idea. So like maybe we could collaborate with them in the future. And what we're trying to do and how we're trying to be a part of the community.
0: Yes, for sure. And you can also go learn more about the No Youth Jail Movement that Nikita discussed in today's episode.
1: And then our last one is just a reminder that we have an episode about the How's Our Neighbors project. So we will keep a link in there in our show notes so you can go hear that interview as well. Um, So with that, thank you all so much for listening. We're looking forward to chatting more with you all soon. But until then, share this episode with your friends and let's keep this conversation about how art can be used as a tool. Take care, Seattle.
0: And sweet dreams, Seattle. This
3: program is supported in part by a grant from the Washington State Arts Commission and the National Endowment of the Arts. We would like to acknowledge that we are on the traditional land of the first people of Seattle, the Duwamish and Coast Salish people, past and present, and honor with gratitude the land itself and the Duwamish and Coast Salish tribes. If you like what you've heard and would like to support this podcast or other Mirror Stage programming, you can donate at our website, MirrorStage.org, or text "Play It Smart" to 206.
1: Thank you everyone for listening. This podcast is available on Breaker, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. So if you are finding us on any of those platforms, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe if possible.